it feels like the air is very still, like before a big storm comes. It's because we just turned off the fan. Oh. (laughs) Cause effect. We're scientists up here. We just would like to remind you that none of the things that we say should be taken as official recommendations. We try to know what we're talking about, but this podcast ultimately represents the opinions of a couple yahoos with master's degrees. It's (laughs) mainly for entertainment. Right. So if you feel that you need help with your own mental health, we encourage you, please talk to your very own doctor or your very own counselor. Get real help. And remember, this podcast is not safe for work, so listen with headphones. Hello. Hi. And welcome. To Freudian Sips. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Anna. (laughs) We... It took me 30 seconds of looking at mom before she got up and she was to say hello. I forget things. I'm getting old. <laughs> mom? Anna? It's episode 17. It's my favorite number. Is it really 17? 17 is my favorite number, yeah. That's a very odd number to be Thank your you. favorite. Oh, it's a prime it's number. prime number. That's why you <laughs> yeah, like it. Yeah, yeah. I just, it just Get on you for remembering that. Yeah, prime numbers. I got it. But it's, I mean, there are more than one prime number <laughs> so why 17? I'm not a mathematologist. I don't know. That's true. Why 17? I don't know. I just like it. It's probably. not 13. 13 too mainstream. Well, I was looking to say, knowing you, it's probably because it's like the underdog number. And nobody else really thinks about 17. I think that's true. That's, it's just kind of out there. It's and just there. Nobody ever says like, I want to be number 17. Yeah, I do. I want to be number 17. If anyone has an opening on a sports team... <laughs> Never mind, don't call me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited about our podcast today for several reasons. But before we actually talk about our podcast, do you want to talk about something else first? Do you want to talk about... Well, I would like to... No, I still want to talk about our podcast. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because it is about us. Because it's the important one. (laughs) No, I want to talk about this cool new thing that we just became a part of, which is called PodCoin. And if you don't know what PodCoin is, it's an app that you can use to listen to podcasts. And the more you listen to podcasts, you earn things called PodCoins. And then you can translate those PodCoins into like little gift cards or the thing I've been doing is donating them to charity, which feels really good on my soul. Because so, you're, you're such a good girl. Yeah, I try to be. <laughs> helps I, I brought you helps up to right. donate PodCoins to a cause. <laughs> so yeah, like you can translate them into money, basically. It takes a while to rack up, but you know, if you're listening to podcasts anyway, why not? Why not do it? So look on it in the Apple store, the Google store, or the you know, Windows phone store. Does anyone have a Windows phone anymore? <laughs> But it's a very, very cool thing. And if you use the code Freudian, you get some extra pod coins when you sign up now. And huh. for two weeks, we are a bonus podcast. Where bonus, bonus. Bonus, bonus. We're always our bonus podcast in our hearts. Absolutely. But for the next two weeks on PodCoin, we are a bonus podcast. So that means if you listen to it, then you get extra pod coins, like more than you would usually get for listening to other podcasts. So that's fun. If you're listening to this from PodCoin, if that's how you discovered us, hello, welcome. Welcome to the Freudian Sips family. It is awesome to have you as an official Sipster. Yes, my mom just adopted you. Yes. Once you listen, you only have to listen. You don't even have to listen to the whole. No. You just listen for like five minutes. And you, it's, and my mom is your mom now. That's it. That's it. You are now my little Welcome. Sipster. <laughs> it is a cult. Yeah, it's a little weird, but you know, welcome. And uh, remember to rate us on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I should also mention that we found this out. We found out through another podcast about PodCoin, and that podcast is called Sip Survivor Pete. And if you're not listening to this podcast, but you're listening to this one and you enjoy it, you should listen to them too, because they have kind of a similar similar vibe we do. It's chill. Mm-hmm. They drink some stuff, and they talk mm-hmm. about some cool stuff. They talk about survival stories, people who have survived some, of them some are crazy a little creepy. stuff. They are. A little creepy. It gets a little, it gets a little true crimey. It gets a little, get a little mm-hmm. weird, a little... 
I really admired them, though, because we've done some things that kind of we've walked up to the line and said it's kind of hard mm-hmm. to be funny about this because it's so serious. They go there. But they, they don't even. They just, they don't hold back. No. They like. Jenny and Danelle are like, we're doing it. We're going. So. Yeah. Ladies, if you're listening, we love you. Yeah. We really Hello. enjoy you. I listen to you while I mow the grass. <laughs> It's her zone time. And it's her meditation that's right. time. And Kenny, too. He's a little quiet. Yes, hello, Kenny. But, he, but he's in there. For some reason, he reminds me of my, my Yeah, your Gabe. brother, my yeah. son. And so when I hear Kenny kind of quietly there with the with the girls. With you know, the two loud women, you're yeah. like, this reminds me of something. Deja vu. Like, this sounds like us. Yeah, so sorry, Kenny. Sorry, Gabriel. Sorry <laughs> you get drowned up by us cool women. And another, I have to, I know we're doing a lot of shout outs before we get to the actual content, but I do have to shout out another podcast as well called Necessary Bullshit. And they actually just shouted us out, so I'm returning the favor. Yeah, it's cool. We're shouting you back. We're shouting you back. It's a back shout. That's what it is. That's a new thing. It's a back shout. (laughs) It was really sweet. They called us like their sister podcast because we kind of started at the same time. We have roughly the same amount of episodes and followers and all that stuff. Mm. So they called us their sister podcast. So they're our brother pod. Well, they're my brother you adopted them too. They'd be my sons. Josh too, and Ian so. are your sons now too. Sorry, so. Josh Ian. Sorry. You're so again, if you're listening to this, you'll probably enjoy them too. They do a lot of political talk, a lot of philosophy talk. They do go into like the mental health stuff too. They have an episode about mental health. So, and the really exciting thing is we are working on a collaboration with them. <gasps> That's going to be so fun. It's going to be fun. I'm a little intimidated because Josh and Ian seem very intelligent. They're very smart. <laughs> They're very smart. When I listened yes. to them on the lawnmower, yes. there were times I had to pause the lawnmower. <laughs> Digest what they said. Yes. Like pause the podcast, pause the lawnmower. <laughs> pause the lawnmower. Take a deep breath. If I could have, I would have Googled some words that I just heard. <laughs> but I didn't have time, so I just had to infer <laughs> the meaning. Yes, they're they're but very it's they're very enjoyable. They expand they your stretch, brain exactly. They stretch my brain. Yes, which is good sometimes. So, to have my some brain cool stretch. new podcasts to listen to if kind of we're your first foray into podcasts, or even if we're you know a long on your long list of podcasts that you listen to. There's some more more podcasts for you to enjoy. Mm-hmm. We okay. don't want you to stop listening to us. though. No, please keep listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> don't keep us right. Don't at the listen top. to them instead of us. <laughs> listen to them along with us. Please. We love them, but hey, we yes. can all be in this together. Yeah. There's We're time for all of love. us. It's like when you have more than one child and you think, will there be room on my lap for one more? And then there is. It's like magic. It's like you say, I don't have a favorite podcast, but you do have a favorite podcast. Just like my mom has a favorite child. It's not me. <laughs> hey. Oh, that's a low blow. Gabe that is, probably Gabe is the favorite. It's a running joke in our family. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that fits into it. kind of does fit into some of the stuff I'm talking about I know. Today. That's a great segue. That's a good segue. What, what are we talking about? We are talking about the life stages, according to Eric Erickson. Eric Erickson. My boy, my special boy. And I'm excited because Anna kind of gave me a little teaser that she said she had some, you know, wanted to tell me about Eric Erickson in a way maybe I haven't looked at him before. There's some cool, I never really looked into him, but he's got a very cool story. Uh, I guess I'm the biography person on this podcast now. The official biographer. So as always, before we talk about someone's theory, we want to talk about the person who made the theory because Mm -hmm. I think that that gives a lot of context and it really helps you understand kind of how they developed what they eventually came to believe in and came to talk about. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Eric Erickson. Is that okay? Just what a cool name. Erickson. Oh, there's a whole name bit. There's a whole chapter in this biography about the name. <laughs> okay, let's hear all about Eric. So, my special boy Eric was born Eric Salomonson on 15th of June, 1902 in Frankfurt, Germany. Aww. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see mm-hmm. the first twist. Uh-huh. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. this story is full of twists and turns, boys and girls. <laughs> Buckle up. First twist is accompanied by the fact that his mother, Carla, was from a prominent Jewish family in Denmark and was married to a Jewish stockbroker, Valdemar Salomonson. But she was estranged from him when Eric was conceived. Not well. Yes. What I year know. was this? Uh, he was born in 1902. Oh, my goodness. I know. So not much is known about Eric's birth father, actually. she hmm. It was 
a brief thing and he didn't stay around when they found out she was pregnant. So Carla fled to Germany. She was in Denmark. She fled to Germany when she discovered she was pregnant. She wow. she knew there would be disgrace around it. Yeah. She had Eric there. She became a nurse. Uh, when Eric was three, Carla married his pediatrician, a German Jewish man by the name of Theodore Homburger. So Eric's name was changed to Okay, Eric. we're still not there. Eric Homburger. And <laughs> I'm sorry, but Homburger. Homburger. <laughs> I'm not laughing. No, at drink someone. it in, drink it in, I drink just, it in. It's uh, very good. Homburger. Eric Homburger. It's mm. not hamburger. If I wasn't so full of pizza from lunch, it would make me a little angry <laughs> today. <laughs> uh, get used to it. I'll be saying it a few times. Okay. Humberger. But Eric was told that this was his real father. Okay. And he didn't find out until late childhood that it was not his real father. And Eric was bitter about it. And mm. so this is going to be kind of a side soapbox because where I work now, I work a lot with adoption families. Mm -hmm. This is not good adoption practice. There are times where people are like, it's better not to tell them. It's easier if they don't know. It's easier if they just think they're a birth part of our family. But that always backfires, and it's actually a really important part of a kid's adopted life to know about their adoption story. So if you know anyone who's adopted or if you're considering adoption, keep in mind that the best practices for adoption are to inform the child from the get-go that they are adopted and work with that as part of their identity. And actually, that is very relevant to Eric because it really messed with his identity. Mm. His sense of identity and belonging was really thrown off when he realized that the person who he thought was his father was not actually his father. So it caused a lot of identity confusion. It also didn't help that he was like tall and blonde and blue-eyed, but he was in a Jewish family. So yeah, he was the target of bigotry from mm. Scandinavian people, from Jewish people, kind of from both sides, which is something that happens a lot when you're bicultural or, um, you know, multinational or anything like that. It's kind of like, instead of, hey, I fit in in both of these communities, it's like, I don't I really don't fit, fit in, in anywhere. either. Yeah. yeah, it's very hard. So That's Eric, from the get-go, had a lot of identity confusion, identity difficulty. But Eric Homburger had an otherwise good childhood. He had a solid classical education. He was very artistic, and eventually he went that way vocationally. He wanted to be an artist. It was the encouragement of his mom's kind of more artistic friends. Now, his stepfather wanted him to be a pediatrician. But, of course. yeah, Eric, in a true, like, no, father, I must dance move, <laughs> like, <laughs> said, no, I'm not going to Eric, that. dance. I must dance, father. He became a wanderer, a wandering artist. He traveled Germany and Italy as an artist. Um, when he was kind of in his late teens, he started this. Wow. Now, this was actually not that uncommon for kids of prominent German families. It was actually called Wanderhaar, meaning wander year, where you just like take a oh. year and kind of... Yeah, that's yeah, kind of like when you take a year to go to Europe. And, yeah, exactly. Okay. Go backpacking or whatever. Yeah. So, so it wasn't too uncommon. It was just kind of that's where he wanted to go vocationally and he wasn't really sure what he wanted to do. So he earned money by selling or bartering his art. But eventually he, this is really sad, he kind of like told himself he wasn't skilled enough hmm. to sustain this as a job. So he wanted to come back to Germany to be an art teacher when he was about 25. Hmm. But when he got back, a friend of his from school, Peter Bloss, had an opportunity in Vienna and he wanted to take Eric with him. So the opportunity was to be an art tutor at the Burlingham Rosenfield School, where kids were being psychoanalyzed by one Anna Freud. <gasps> Our girl Anna. Yay! Yes. He eventually ended up sketching the children of a woman named Dorothy, who Anna was very close to. And the children and women all noticed Eric's compassion and his competence with working with kids. So Anna basically recruited him like Nick Fury recruiting the Avengers for the <laughs> Avengers Initiative. Yes. And she said, hey, I really think you should study psychoanalysis at the Vienna Institute, the Vienna Psychoanalysis Institute. And so he did. And he specialized in child psychoanalysis. He actually trained directly with Anna for years. Wow, how cool. Yeah, yeah. Because she was just so impressed by how naturally he worked with kids. Hmm. Isn't that great? 
isn't he that was a like, wonderful, wonderful person? That was like his gift. And <laughs> I then... know. He's, it's very cool. And so he actually did come into contact with our boy Sigmund for a little bit. But Eric was really shy. And by the time that Eric was kind of in contact with him, just kind of in the circle of Anna and Sigmund, because they kind of had this really insular circle of people around them. Mm-hmm. And by the time Eric was in that circle, Sigmund Freud was already suffering really badly from the cancer that would eventually oh. kill him. So yeah. Eric was just kind of like, oh, it's okay. I won't, I won't bother him. And he really rarely said anything more than just kind of greeting each other in the hallway. But Eric learned psychoanalytic theory directly from Anna Freud, mm-hmm. which was already very different from what Sigmund was talking about. Mm-hmm. So he already had kind of one step removed from actual psychoanalysis. On a really weird side note, yes it makes you think about how important it is sometimes when you see something in a person and we think oh I shouldn't say that because it's kind of weird even like almost strangers Mm -hmm. and I know you and I have talked about this Anna that there are times where we say something to a stranger that other people might go that's compliment a total stranger but being a teacher for years there were times when I would see something in a kid that they weren't really you know and I would say to him you know I've noticed Mm -hmm. that you have this and this and maybe someday just kind of think about that sometimes I think we're afraid to say things to people because uh, we think they'll think it's weird and sometimes they do think it's weird That's but I mean okay. if Anna wouldn't Anna wouldn't have said that to I him I don't know how it's said is it it's probably Anna, Anna it's because probably Anna, yeah Germany. but we call her Anna because you're Anna and I'm that's, Anna that's <laughs> but if she wouldn't have said anything if she would have been like oh that would be weird if I said something right you know his whole life might have been totally different we wouldn't have the stages of I know. the lifestyle of the life okay what else well he eventually got his diploma from the Vienna Psychological Vienna Psychoanalytical Psychoanalysis I'm not sure what it is. I think it's psychoanalysis institute. And he also studied the Montessori method of education, which I'm not going to talk about much because quite frankly, I don't know what it means. I didn't look at it. <laughs> it's just there. I do. I know what it means. We'll, we'll talk about it another time. All right. All right. But he got a diploma, a Montessori diploma. Mm-hmm. So those were the only two degrees he ever got in his whole life. Wow. Yeah. He's the best. He's the best. I love him. So in 1929, he met his wife at a masked ball. Huh. Isn't that great? <laughs> I love that. You just like everything about I him. I love this. This is fun. <laughs> I'm having fun. So his wife was a Canadian-American teacher and student of dance, Joan Serson. Hmm. And Joan doubted psychoanalysis. Uh-oh. And she could not stand Anna Freud. <laughs> oh, oh no. Yeah. But she believed in Eric. And she supported him. And after Eric finished his clinical education, this was around 1933, and he and Joan kind of mutually decided that they didn't want to raise kids in Germany. What with all the Nazis happening? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, pretty logical decision there. And first they went to Copenhagen, because Eric wanted to find traces of his birth father. Ah. Yeah. But Copenhagen did not like psychoanalysis, mm. and they kind of ran him out of town. They, like, refused to give him a work permit and everything. So instead of returning to Vienna, they decided to go to America. They went to Boston because uh, Joan kind of had some family there, so they thought they could integrate well. And Eric was the first child psychoanalyst. He held positions at Massachusetts General Hospital and eventually at Harvard Medical School. Wow. And he established himself as a really good clinician. I mean, like a banger of a clinician. He was very good. Mm-hmm. He eventually left Harvard for Yale. He continued to kind of refine his ideas around this time. He actually started linking the psychology of it to the anthropology kind of area. Mm-hmm. And for example, when he left Yale, it was actually to study the Sioux tribe in South Dakota. And then he went to California to study the Yurok tribe. So he really wanted to engage with these other cultures and see how how development and anthropology played together. And he was really interested in that. And he eventually just kind of started to hop around professor jobs. He finally ended at Harvard again. He stayed there from 1960 to 1970 when he retired. But from then he kept writing. I mean, he wrote a whole bunch of essays, especially about the later stages of the theory. And this was really sad. He wanted to write an autobiography because he wanted to kind of apply his stage theory to his own life and be able to write about his own life throughout 
the stages that, that mm. we're going to talk about in a second. But by the time he was really considering this, his his memory kind of started to fade. It was his 80s. Mm. And so he didn't end up doing that. But he wrote a lot of other stuff. He was very prolific in writing essays and stuff. And he died on Cape Cod on the 12th of May in 1994. He was age 91. Wow. Mm-hmm. Had a very full life. So, let's get to the name chapter. I was just kind of going, did I? I was thinking to myself, did, <laughs> did I, I not zone out? Did I not? <laughs> <laughs> was I listening? Nope. It's just <laughs> okay. interesting enough that I'm putting it in an oh, entire okay. episode okay. section. Woo. Yes. <sighs> so, until he worked at Yale, Eric was Eric Homburger. Mm-hmm. The move to Yale kind of let him rework his identity. He changed his name from Homburger from his stepfather to a self created name of Erickson. So Erickson was a way to recognize his birth father because in Copenhagen when he was there, he did hear some rumors that his father had also been named Eric. Ah, okay. So he named... Erickson. Yes, exactly. So he kept Homburger as his middle name to honor his stepdad. So this dude's okay. name is Eric Homburger Erickson. Okay. Awesome name. <laughs> Great name. Awesome. So uh, in 1938... The family became naturalized U.S. citizens. So Eric, Joan, and their three kids all took the surname when they became naturalized. This was the best part of the entire thing. It was reported that his three kids were delighted that they were not going to be called Hamburger anymore. (laughs) Of course. Imagine the ridicule. Please don't let him call me Hamburger anymore. Dad, please change your name. (laughs) So he eventually changed his name and his kids were very happy. Now, I was kind of upset when I first read this because when I first kind of started to catch on that he had changed his name to Erickson that he had created himself, I was like, gosh, that is so powerful for identity. That is so cool because I thought he was meaning himself. Oh. I thought it was like, I am my own person. I am Eric Erickson. I am not, like, it doesn't, I've come to this place where I don't need to know who my birth father is. And and Mm -hmm. if he's going to, you know, abandon me, then I'm just going to go my own way. So I thought it was like a self-directed, I am my own person kind of thing. But it wasn't, which... It's fine. That's fine that he wants to do that. But I, <laughs> when I first read it, I was much more excited than at the oh, end. Okay. And I was like, oh, it's kind of different, different direction I thought it was going to go. But I still thought it was very cool that I think did it's that. really cool that he kept his stepfather's yeah. name too because yeah. that man put a lot of energy into his upbringing. Right, and, and that's what Eric said, that he wanted to keep that name even as a middle name just because he wanted to honor the person that had raised him mm-hmm. that had contributed to his his growing up and learning all that he had learned. So, so he, I think that's important. He must have been brilliant to get away with what he got away with basically without the education that would have been <laughs> yeah, yeah. necessary for him uh, to do well, that. Well, so in my research for this, I learned that, and I won't go too far into this because we are going to do an episode on Anna Freud. I promise we're getting there. Uh-huh. But Anna Freud didn't have any education either, like formal in that way because her dad was Sigmund Freud. She, yeah, she, just did, like, she just had her dad. He just, yeah, did some <laughs> nepotism and then she was a lead uh-huh. psychoanalyst. So I think there was a lot of kind of if you know the right people, you can jump up the ranks a little bit. So that makes sense. Yes. Okay. Okay. Should I talk about his theory for just a second as kind of an overview on the stuff that we're about to jump into? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Talk about his theory. So if you recognize the name Eric Erickson already, it's because you have heard of his psychosocial stages, of which there are eight, and we are going to break them up into several episodes. The next several episodes are going to be us talking about each stage. Mm-hmm. This is as opposed to the psychosexual stages that we kind of talked about when we did Freud. Right. So instead of psychosexual, Eric thought we have psychosocial stages centering more around our identity and how we relate to others. Uh, Like I said, there are eight of them. And it's also different in that Eric's theory goes through the entire lifespan, whereas Freud's theory, you like, the last stage happens when you're like, what, puberty? Like 12-ish, I think. Mm. And And then the rest of your life. The rest of your life, you're in that stage. (laughs) So his were just very child development kind of centered. But Mm -hmm. Eric is like, no, our identity and our social context is always developing. So we have many stages that go through the entire life. So there are eight stages that stretch through the entire lifespan. Mm -hmm. And they are so, I mean, they're so ingrained in our development education yes like in every development class i've ever taken i've learned about it not only have i learned about it but it's usually been centered like broken up into the stages that right. he set forth so the stuff that he talked about is widely considered to be one of the one of the forefronts of how we conceptualize development now 
Right. And it doesn't, I mean, I know I've talked to people who are going through, like, to be a teacher. I mean, I, when I studied oh, yeah. to be a teacher, we studied this. Right. Um, I know that when Gabriel was studying to be a nurse, I remember he was studying the life stages. So it's not just for people who are in the no. field of psychology. No, we use yeah. it for a lot of things. Well, because this is like my... Uh... I, I tell everyone that they should at least minor in psychology if they're going mm-hmm. to school yeah. because it's useful in any so many career. Fields, yeah. I mean, if you're kind of aware of this stuff, if you're dealing with people, which you're going to be because we live in a society, mm-hmm. then it's kind of useful to know all this stuff because it does ring so true. Exactly. So each stage that Eric put forth has a crisis. This crisis is expressed as like A versus B. So something versus something else. Mm -hmm. And then a virtue that goes along with it. So basically, if a person resolves the crisis of the stage, having more of A than B, basically, then they carry the virtue onto their next stage. Now, this is also where it kind of differs from Freud's in that mastery of a stage is not necessarily required to go to the next stage. It's just that if you don't master the crisis of one stage before you go on to the next, it may come back as problems in later stages. But like if you don't master the crisis that you have when you're a toddler, it's not like you don't go on to the next stage because the stages happen kind of based around age and development. Right, and what's going on around you. In the- yeah, yeah. So it's not like if you don't master the crisis that you have in toddlerhood, you don't get to go on. You still go on. It's just that later that toddlerhood crisis may come back to bite right. you. I'm going to be lacking something. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it could be, you know, problems later on, but it can be resolved later. I mean, we can deal with that crisis when it comes up, when it shows its head later in life. And the crisis is resolved by what we call the central process. And that's basically the method that we use to solve the crisis to resolve that. Mm -hmm. Very well stated, Anna. Good job. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. I read it in a book. (laughs) Thank you, I made it all up. Do we want to, like list the stages or should we just go as they come no i mean i think it would be good to just say yeah okay so the first stage is infancy and that's birth to two years second stage is toddlerhood that's two to four third stage is early childhood that's four to five four to six fourth stage is middle childhood that's six to twelve fifth is adolescence that's 13 to 19 sixth is early adulthood that's uh, 20 to 40, kind of. Seventh is adulthood. That's 40 to 64, 65. And then the last one is maturity, and that's 65 on. Now, as we start to talk about this more in depth for as we go on through these episodes, we will break them down a little more because as the stages have developed and as the development education has developed, <laughs> sure. Got it. <laughs> we'll go with that. Nailed it. Then we've kind of added stages and experts have said, well, it's it's a little different and there's kind of more to this than there is to this and right. there's that. So they've they've kind of expanded on some of them, but they've kept the basic skeleton as what Eric mm-hmm. set forth. So those are the stages. And for the rest of the episode, my lovely mother will be talking about the very first stage. Infancy. Infancy babies. Babies. One of my favorite things in the whole world. Babies. Okay, and so each of the stages has a set of developmental tasks. That makes sense that when you're a certain age that you go through and and there are certain tasks that you have to develop. I want to just kind of throw this in here to start. The idea, I mean, we can all think about how much a baby changes just in their first year of life. Um, yeah, when we were from, talking about this episode, mom was like, no, we just got to do infancy in its own episode. Like forever. We could <laughs> like, talk for days on what babies, and if you've ever either had your own children or you've been around children, you know it's just amazing to see from day to day, literally, how babies change. During their first year, a baby triples, at least, in their weight, if they're a healthy baby. Their weight triples in one year. That sounds like a year so, for me, too. I was going to say, <laughs> think if that happened to one of us, it as would not be pretty. currently full of pizza, I feel like my weight has tripled today. And so as I talk about, like, the developmental tasks, this is kind of just assuming that a baby is physically healthy. There's a whole bunch of extra sidebars that we could do along right. the way. Um, one of the little sidebars that I have to mention to you, though, Anna, is that 
you know, if a baby is uh, lower weight, usually because they're born prematurely, but sometimes it's because of alcohol or drug use uh, in the mother. There's lots of reasons that that can happen. Then they have special challenges. And a low birth baby is considered under 5 pounds, 8 ounces. so small. You know how much you were when you were born? How much? 5 pounds, 8 ounces. So you were exactly, right. if you were <laughs> any littler, you would have been considered a low I would have been run to the litter. Yeah. And you were actually a few days overdue, so it wasn't say, that you were premature. I was you actually supposed to be born on Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Day. I wasn't. And you said no. I was like, I will wait a I few was like, this is a corporate this. chill holiday, and I refuse <laughs> to come out. So... Uh, as I go through these things, we're just kind of assuming, we hate to use those words like normal, and but the average baby. If we're talking about, like we've talked baby. about like a bell curve before, right. I mean how average in like a mathematical sense, mm. not like a normal kind of sense, because I don't, I don't really believe in that either. But like on the bell curve, this is the middle. This right. is the mathematically average. So so you can imagine that in infancy, which for this, for the for our case, we're going from birth to 24 months. Mm-hmm. You can imagine that the d- developmental tasks are overwhelming. I oh, mean, yeah. there's so there's much a that a baby develops. So they become little humans by the time they're two. Exactly. Little drunk humans. Little drunk humans. <laughs> I told Anna when I was preparing for this, I went into the rabbit hole of watching videos of toddlers. And a lot of them are titled things like, toddlers act like like drunk babies. or <laughs> Drunk I don't know, people. Drunk people, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I'm the one, like, I'm researching toddlerhood because I'm doing the next stage. So she's like, I shouldn't have even been I looking at these. Stop, stop. And then I would click on another one and watch the little babies stumble yeah, so over. So this is the stage before yeah. they get to be drunk little yeah, people. They don't. Well, it's kind of toward the end of this. Oh, when they sure. start to walk. Yeah. That's when they start, you know, staggering Wibbly about. wobbly and right. all, but... So I'm going to kind of zoom over the top of these. Um, and as you listen, if you're like, especially if you have babies or you're yeah. planning on having babies, you might be like, oh, I'd like to learn more about that. There's lots of information out there about it. But they have five developmental tasks. The first one is establishment and coordination of sensory, perceptual, and motor systems. Just that we could talk about for like three days. Okay, but let's not. Let's not. When a baby is born, their brain contains about 100 billion neurons. That just kind of makes my brain hurt a little bit. Um, That's a big number. (laughs) And they're already all connected in pathways. And really, that part doesn't really change. The part that does change, though, is that they... How do they word it? There's a great deal of plasticity. Yeah. That's a hard word for me to say. Have you ever noticed every show there's at least one word that's <laughs> there's always hard for one. me? There's always one. Mine was psychoanalysis, which is interesting because we're called that's Freudian Sips. <laughs> that's maybe one we should practice together. Uh, <laughs> Got to practice over the mirror. So even though the fundamental organization of your brain doesn't change after birth, the details of its structure change in little ways. I okay. know that's kind of deep, but and I'm, that's all I'm going to say. Because I always thought we developed those connections as things happen. Exactly. And even into adulthood. Oh, yeah. But the but the original design of it is there in place when we're born. So Your brain's always a squishy pink. What did we call it that one episode? Sack of meat. A squishy pink sack of meat. <laughs> I will never forget that. It's burned in my memory. <laughs> it's burned into your brain. It's burned into your that sack was of the meat. Episode, that was the episode when we were out of town and in a hotel after okay. having some trauma. Yes. Oh, yes. I won't ever forget oh, that Oh, yes. One. You were already in a heightened state of trauma. Yes, I was. So, obviously. That's episode six, if anyone wants to listen to mom being in a state of trauma. <laughs> wow, you're really good about remembering the Thank you. The I have numbers. a great deal of neuroplasticity for okay. remembering episodes. Apparently. So, obviously, the sensory stuff that's going on in a baby obviously, or things like their hearing and their vision. Right. So we know from studies that hearing is obviously their earliest link between babies and the people around them. And we know from studies that babies can recognize uh, the voices that they heard in utero, like from birth, immediately. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it talks over and over again about how hard it is to do any kind of, I don't want to use the word experiments because we've kind of had a negative connotation to that, <laughs> we, but it's hard to, it's hard to do any research yeah. with babies because go. they can't talk and they can't even. How are you yeah. feeling, baby? <laughs> baby, on a scale of one to ten. Baby, how blink your you? eyes baby. if you're not happy right now. <laughs> baby, point to the chart with how you're feeling. Which emoji best baby. exemplifies? <laughs> They don't ever. They don't ever use their name. And they just, they just look baby. at you like, "Stop 
talking No, but to that's me. that's like because I know that even little ba- like newborn babies, they're half asleep, and if their mom talks, uh-huh. they'll kind of turn toward them. Uh huh. Isn't that great? And so it's been shown in research that the human voice is the earliest stimuli that evokes a smile in a baby. Not something they see. It's the voice. So it might look like they're smiling at you, but it's actually the sounds they're hearing that makes them smile. If you're telling a very funny knock-knock joke, that's what they're smiling at. (laughs) They're like, you are hilarious, mommy. (laughs) Knock-knock jokes are the best thing. And you grow out of that by the time you're two. (laughs) And this is very cool. Just days, you know, like a matter of a couple of weeks a baby starts to show a preference for for their the language that they're used to hearing okay so whatever language they hear from their parents and from those people who are the closest to them they already start to show a preference for that Hmm. um the the way that that language sounds their own language we put it that way for lack of a better term well and i'm not sure what they do in families that have two languages i was just gonna say i read a little bit about that in toddlerhood research uh and that they Probably respond to both of them. Both. Equally. equally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One one note in that, that I thought was kind of funny is that in very early, like the first couple of days, they respond the same way emotionally. I don't know however they're doing this. Um, they're to, doing MRIs on to babies. To primate, to monkey Really? Sounds like chittering? Yeah. As they do humans. Like they have the exact <laughs> same emotional response for just like two or three Their days. Their monkey brains are like, and then hey, they're like, that's "Oh, me. I'm not wait, a monkey." Wait, okay, anymore. wait. How did they find this out? Did they take a two that's or three a- year old baby to a zoo and they said, three "Make days. that monkey talk"? <laughs> we got to do an experiment. <laughs> this is for science. Make that monkey say something. <laughs> we are just going to trust that all of this research is is above uh, board. Yes, <laughs> we're not torturing any monkeys in the process. Okay, so then of course, so hearing is is the first sensory that kind of comes into play. Of course, vision is very close, but we kind of have some confusion about the vision as a society because this, this is one yeah. of my big pet peeves about people interacting with babies. How like I was just telling Nathan about this. Though. This is like a you know how you just have some pet peeves and you know they're like fedora <laughs> pet peeves where you feel like you're you don't want to mention it because then you'll be like acting too smart. Mm-hmm. You know, because people will be across the room and be like, oh, that baby's smiling at me from all the way over there. I'm just going to be like, they can't see you, Sharon. <laughs> they don't know who you are. <laughs> can't tell you're a person. I don't know who this Sharon is. It's, it's the metaphorical <laughs> white woman who's saying this. Oh, okay. Well, my. Some biases coming out in there. <laughs> okay, As a white so, woman, I could so say So for that. those of us... <laughs> who are standing across the room saying, oh, he's smiling at me. Those he's of us who do that, and some of us do that. We need to remember that for the first few weeks, mm-hmm. <laughs> babies really have optimal focus at about 20 centimeters, which is about where a baby is when a woman is breastfeeding. It's like a foot, maybe? Yeah, just from... Um, centimeters, what? Yeah, from your this face. Is, this Look, is a, you're holding This is America. Talk American. <laughs> <laughs> I learned in grade school that one of these days we're all going to be using centimeters. Yeah, they said that when you were in grade school, huh? How did that go? They said it when you were in grade school. They, they kept and they're saying, still it. saying it in they're grade school. They're still saying it. One of these days. We should really be in metric system. We're not. One of the cool words that they use, there's a few cool words that I'm going to throw out. One of the cool words they use in baby research is they refer to babies are attracted to things that look like a face. Even if it's not a face, and they call that faceness. Faceness. <laughs> They're attracted to oh, faceness. Oh, 20 centimeters is only like eight inches. It's like this. Eight you're holding inches. the baby at your breast and you're looking down at the baby's face. Depends on how high you <laughs> It comes in. <laughs> different people have different shapes. <laughs> Our brains both went there at the same time as you we say, thought about. You said it quicker. The length of breasts. Okay. I don't know how that works. Okay. So (laughs) tastes and smells are also sensory. And we know that babies actually experience taste in utero. And that, I apologize to you, Anna, and to Gabriel for this, that babies are affected by what their mothers eat in that it does affect their preference for taste when like they're they babies. Like they like the things yeah. that were eaten? So like if, if mom ate a lot of spicy food, yes, <laughs> Why are you using that example? <laughs> I don't know, like jalapenos and stuff. 
Then I literally two days ago, I was like, I just need to have some nachos with jalapenos on them. I just need to. Mom, just raise your arms in victory. You I did this to you. I did I this. I control of your life. <laughs> and that continues on um, if, if a woman breastfeeds, you know, what she's eating currently. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, and that's why when you're breastfeeding, you're not supposed to um, have too much alcohol. And Although I have heard that dark beer increases lactation. Just... <laughs> In that little study, they also pointed out that children who are breastfed tend to be less picky eaters as toddlers and uh, older because they, are, they experience more, more taste. Stuff. Like if a child is on formula, they mm-hmm. won't have those many different tastes while they're having that their... That makes sense. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Mom, why does your breast milk taste like jalapenos? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's spicy All stuff, the time. <laughs> you just like, the baby's like, whoa, whoa. Obviously, one of the sensory things that babies are very into is touch because that's their world. One of the things that was brought up in some of that research is the idea of swaddling babies. I know that when I first... Wrapping up a real yeah, tight, real tight, a little, little peanut, a little baby burrito. When I was at the hospital with Anna, when Anna was first born, and they first showed me how to swaddle her and, to, and wrap her up real tight. And I am the kind of person that, like, when I sleep at night, I have to stick one of my legs out. <laughs> yeah. And I then can't. the monsters can get you from under the bed, Bob. <laughs> they don't, though, because they're scared of me. <laughs> but that lady can kick our ass. I've heard about her. I've heard about don't it. Grab her She's got three black belts. <laughs> But I don't like when the sheets like push down yeah. on my feet. We've been over yeah. this before. So when they showed me swaddling you, I was like, she is not going to like that. You're like, that. okay, but how do I get one of her yeah. legs out? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> She's going to be just like me and she will not like that. But you'd loved it. I mean, I was shocked. And it's been my life experience with little babies that right. most little babies, because they've just been in the womb. It's, I was, yeah, it feels yeah. similar to being mm-hmm. in a uterus where you're very right. cramped. So they were in the womb and they were all like held really tight. But that tight carries over sudden, because even people who like to stick one leg out from under the... Because now I am that person too. I have to one leg out. Mm. But that goes back to like weighted blankets, you know? Yeah. That's really good for anxiety because it feels... Yeah, it feels like you're you're there's something heavy and you're kind of being compressed and... And so I think that kind of relates to that feeling. Exactly. So we need to talk about sucking for a moment. Do we? I'm going to make another drink. I, I, I will talk about sucking while you take <laughs> another drink. Okay. Because, you know, we kind of th- take that for granted. But for a baby, like, sucking is a huge part of their world. It's not just, obviously, the way that they get food. <laughs> I I'm, I'm taking this very seriously. <laughs> But it's also one of their earliest coping strategies. They actually literally have that instinct to calm themselves down. And then with later time, their mouth is used to touch. You know, they use, they stick things in their mouth. Yeah. That's not just because they want to chew on it or suck on it. It's because they want to figure That's out what it is. That's how they get information. Yeah, exactly. And so before they learn better dexterity with their fingers, they do a lot of sucking to try to figure out what is this thing that I've got in my hand. That's why babies stick things in their mouths all the time. That's exactly right. That's what they're supposed to do. That's, they can't that's help how it. they're learning. So they're the last learning. part of that first task is motor development. And wow, there's so much we could talk about. You're only Mo- on the first task. I know. I, I know. lost the plot. It goes, at this point. it goes really fast after this. This first one's okay. the hardest. Yeah. So, well, if we're talking about the, like you said, the physical just explodes so fast right. that there's so much change. So, this would be a good place to talk about uh, reflexes that babies yeah. are growing. Very briefly, talk about reflexes because we talked about some of our favorite. And the sucking is a reflex. Obviously, <laughs> that's a thing that clinicians do is they talk about their favorite <laughs> developmental <laughs> reflexes in babies. What's your favorite, Anna? Uh, my favorite's the Moro because it seems like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mom did the Moro reflex. I'm sure she'll talk about it. Can I mention what the Moro is? Please do. So the Moro is a horrible reflex. It's when babies like feel like they're getting dropped and they like fling their arms up above their head like in a like, I don't have any weapons officer motion. <laughs> Yeah, they they, it's, they it's, feel like they're falling. They yeah, feel they feel like, like they're falling, so they're, they feel like they're mm-hmm. they need to put their arms out. But this it disappears after like four months, mm-hmm. which is probably why I have a scar on my head of falling <laughs> on my face and not putting my arms out to help me. I'm not sure why that <laughs> reflex doesn't just stay. So One of my favorites the is the Babinski. Babinski, but not really because of why of has, what has the, the best re- name. It's just got the best name. Yeah. It's so fun to say. Babies have Babinski, where you touch the sole of their foot and their little toes go. There's a lot of reflexes that are part of their motor development and they're you know, that's part of when you take your baby in for well baby, they mm-hmm. have to check all those reflexes to see <laughs> So that, if you're like, why is the doctor yeah, like pretending like they're dropping my baby? <laughs> 
it's probably for a medical reason, but I can't promise. <laughs> Hopefully so. <laughs> and so, like, <clears throat> motor development, five to seven months. Five to seven months is when the babies start to reach and actually grasp for something. Around 12 months is when they get that pincer <gasps> grasp That's where they favorite. can the Cheerios. Our, yeah, our, uh, our development teacher said this is the reason Cheerios were invented. To yeah. pick up the pincers. Pick up the pincers. Mm-hmm. And that's where they use the... We're, we're both making the motion, but yeah, for our audio listeners, <laughs> it's, it's when they use their uh, thumb and forefinger to pick things up. Good. Thank you for explaining that. I can't... Sometimes I forget they can't see us. <laughs> doing this weird stuff that we do so uh motor milestones you know sometimes when you when you first have the first baby you have those books that tell you your baby should do this sure don't get too hung up on this if you're a new mommy or a new daddy because all babies are different in my research it was like it's a two to four month kind of either or that it would like and that's a long time in a baby in a baby life that's a long time so if your baby's not hitting a milestone by like month four then they could hit it as up to month eight and right. it would still be like within be patient, the term. Be patient. Don't don't get too carried away with it. Yeah. So in the first month, we're really just we're just looking for those reflexes. In the first month, their head they usually cannot hold their head up. You <laughs> They're know? not so good with the neck. Support thing. their head. <laughs> By three months, though, they should be able to raise their head and their chest when they're on their stomach, um, and they should be able to open and shut their hands like all the time they don't just grasp things like they did when they were little (laughs) and they can bring their hand to their mouth which is good and bad because they can stick things in their (laughs) mouth at that point four to seven months they can roll probably both ways they usually roll one particular way for a long time because (laughs) that's part of that like if you're going to be a right-handed or left-handed person yeah Mm -hmm. they can usually sit by the end of seven months without support but it starts around four to seven months that they can start to sit up with somebody kind of barely holding them um they they can sport their weight on their legs but that doesn't mean they can stand up and you know Mm -hmm. how people do that where they hold their baby up and and they stand there on their little wobbly legs They start to reach with one hand, and they can switch things from one hand to the other hand. This is four to seven months. Babies can juggle by the time they're seven months. So eight to 12 months, they're going to sit up without any help, and they are probably going to, many of them will be crawling at this point, or in the very least, they'll be scooting in one way or another. And babies can find amazing ways to scoot. The purpose of that in their little lives is that they're trying to get something. Trying to Oh, yeah, they wanted. They got stuff to do. <laughs> they've, got, they've got baby things to do. So, one thing that I did read a lot about, another rabbit hole I went down, was the <laughs> idea of crawling and the importance of crawling and reading uh, when children are a little older. I remember when those studies were really big when I was a young teacher, and they were like, "You got to have your babies crawl because if they don't crawl, they're not going to be able to read." And there is a lot of research that kind of supports that. That crawling develops that. Having your right it's right and left hemisphere working together. But there are a lot of other things that that are tied into that research. There are also a big pile of research that says, eh, it doesn't really matter. (laughs) If your kid doesn't crawl, it's not going to kill him. Great. However, there are also studies that link uh, lack of crawling to children who develop ADHD. And again, there's also a big stack that says, no, that's not true. But but there are some studies, and there are people who still, that do currently, crawling therapy with children who have ADHD, hmm. like have them crawl. Like older like, kids? Yes. Really? And it, and... The research that supports it says it actually helps children. The research to, that supports it yeah. supports the it. The research that doesn't says it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. So. <laughs> so when you're looking for your baby to walk, it could be anywhere between 12 and 24 months. Some babies walk before wow, that. that's a big range. Mm-hmm. And some babies don't walk for a long time, so don't panic. You've told me before that I was very interested in Gabriel crawling. <laughs> that I would like crawl with him and be like, "This is how you do it." Yeah, and you would like you'd like prop him up on his little arms and legs, and then you'd like push him on the butt. <laughs> go, go, go! I think I have a video of go. you like patting him on the butt. I was probably like, "Go, go!" <laughs> I was probably like taking bets, and I was trying to get like baby races going. <laughs> I was like oh, five by that point. I was yeah. on my, I was yeah, on my that's betting. That's what you did. You were like that. My book, okay, my bookie needed <laughs> needed him to crawl. So that was task two was sensory motor intelligence processing organizing. One of my favorite things in these tasks is when babies kind of start to realize that they can cause things to happen. Um, <laughs> that sounds causality. dangerous. Yeah. And there's actually, this is weird, there's a theory that's called the theory theory. It sounds Wait, like something no, I no, made no, up. No, 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 no. The Wait. theory theory. 
That's so dumb. What is it? It's about causality and that and that babies will look at something and say, hmm, I think if I do this, then that will happen. Oh, like they have They theories? have a theory, right, that, that it's going to cause something. And then they prove it or disprove it's it. It's called the testing theory. The theory. Or the, theory. the, the, the meta theory or the uh, something better than the theory theory. One of the things that we hear a lot about in this stage is actually a theory from Piaget, which perhaps we will talk about Piaget probably. someday. Probably but Piaget it fits episode. into a stage um, which we hear about all the time, object permanence, when you hear about babies. And My favorite that, thing. You like that one, don't you? What is that about? Oh, object permanence is basically why peekaboo works. Because when you put your hands in front of your face for a baby, the baby literally thinks you are not existing anymore. Mm-hmm. They think you, like, their tiny baby brains think that you don't exist in the world anymore. So that's why, like, when you take a toy away from them. In the book that I was looking at, I'll have to show you if I can find it later. There's this great picture of, like, a baby looking at, like, this little elephant toy. And then in the next picture, right next to it, there's, like, a kind of a poster board between the baby and the toy. And the baby is looking at the camera like, hey, what the hell, man? <laughs> Who took my elephant? It's like, why is the elephant gone? The elephant Did you is see that, not dude? extant anymore. He looks very upset at the whole situation. It's very good. He's not happy. They're not happy. So object permanence is when, like, I mean, it, and it, obviously it only happens in infancy. So when you're doing peekaboo with, like, older kids, they don't think you're... Disappearing. <laughs> Look, where'd he go? But, or they close your eyes and say, you can't see me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a whole different thing. If, you're, if your 15-year-old no. kid is doing that, you got some issues. If your 15-year-old hasn't developed object permanence yet, there's problems. Right. And so the, the idea of having object permanence starts at about eight to nine months. So before that, yeah, you can fool them all the time. It's fully developed 16 to 18 months into their infancy. So task number three is a huge one that I'm not going to talk about very much at all because actually you're going to talk a lot about it probably in toddlerhood, and that's communication. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, And that, you know, little tiny babies um, have lots of perception about language, but they just don't yet know how to express that language themselves. So they have language perception long before they have language production, which makes perfect sense. Uh, One of the things that I saw said, by five months, a baby knows their name. And I'm thinking, five months? It takes five (laughs) months? My cat learned it in like one day. (laughs) Cats live like a fifth of the time that... I you don't care. <laughs> that makes sense. They learn it by one month. And the kids <laughs> learn it by five. That's five months in cat years. <laughs> okay. I just think that my babies knew their names quicker than that. Five months? Seriously? I think if you're thinking they know their name, like if you say their name and they like look at you, it's because they're looking at the voice like you looked at earlier. Oh, okay. You said earlier. Yeah. Like, yeah, that makes sense. Like they're responding the to the sound, sound instead right. of just the actual what you're saying. Like you could be like toaster and they'd look at you. <laughs> and you'd oh. be like, oh no, he thinks his name is toaster. What do we do? Oh, God help your future children. <laughs> hey, Toaster, let's try this word. Toaster is a good name. It's hey, on my Eleanor. short list. <laughs> okay. Ooh. Toaster. So when your baby's about six to... <laughs> I'm going on. Okay, go on. A six to ten months along, they start to do those little language sounds like mama and dada. Which uh, are, are not word words. They're not words at all. And quite frankly, we get so excited about it, you know, and we fight for those babies to say mama before dada. When usually dada is quicker because it's, it's easier. easier to say with mm-hmm. their little baby exactly. mouths. Exactly. So it's just a sound that they make. Like, think, like, do it with your own face right now. Like, say m versus d. Like, d. it's just easier. Mm. Like, you can accidentally say d. <laughs> Oops, I just said the. Which is what baby, I mean, that's what babies are doing when they just, say those words. They're just making right. sounds. Right, exactly. Um, by eight months, your baby is going to start to communicate with gestures or at least looks in a direction. Like if they want something, they're like, <laughs> not like Anna's making weird gestures with their hands. The shaka no. gesture, you know? <laughs> Like pointing to something they want. Oh, that kind of well, gesture. Which kind of goes with the reaching thing that you said earlier. Right. They reach for right. things. And- right. But they'll make, they'll like, uh, you know, make sounds <laughs> or whine. Whining is, is a good one. You're still, still do that. that. <laughs> Thanks. That's around eight months. and, and Or 28 <laughs> years. <laughs> Somewhere in there. Um, 
I liked this one. Between nine and eleven months, babies do that thing where they give you everything. Oh, you know they that's pick my up favorite. like little fuzzies yeah, and they hand it to you. That's my favorite. <laughs> it's called Here. giving. That's what the <laughs> that's what the researchers call it. Giving psychology's fun. <laughs> I know. And they do that to get like attention to interact. <laughs> sure. So like, here's a fuzzy. It's the best fuzzy I've ever freaking seen in my here's life. Here's my shoe. And you're like, you should have this shoe on your foot. <laughs> but it's that thing you do where <laughs> do they I... give you the fuzzy and you go, thank you. Oh my you know, God. babies, toddlers, they're cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, twelve to eighteen months. Um, they're gonna start to have words. They're actually going to have words that mean something. Around 16 months, they say that infants can understand 92 to 321 words. Wow. But that's receptive language. It's not spoken language. Right. But they can recognize that many. And again... Still, that's a lot. But then again, we go back to that thing like, how do they figure that out? Yeah. Well, just repetition. I mean, when we're talking to babies, we're generally saying the same things like bottle Mm -hmm. and bed and nap and stuff like that. So I think just by the repetition, it's kind of just it's almost kind of Pavlovian you know and yes, some, yes yeah where where they recognize that this arrangement of sounds goes with this thing that happens when the big people in my life say bottle I get fed <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's fun that's good stuff okay so here's another fancy word that I like it's hollow phrases h-o-l-o hollow hollow oh it's phrases. not like hollow like empty no hollow phrases and that refers to those things that babies do where they use a word like I'm going to use, for example, baba. And they use an utterance that isn't a real word, but they also use it with maybe pointing or with gestures or emotion on their face. And you know that means the kid wants his bottle. So it's a representational right. thing. So in that one little word phrase, baba, they said, may I please have my bottle? <laughs> Why use many words when few why, words do trick? Why do we complicate it why, with lots of Let's words? just go back to that. <laughs> okay, task number four is attachment. And this is a big thing that we're actually going to probably have There's to... There's so much to talk we're about We're going to come back to that yeah. in another thing. But basically the idea is that babies attach to their... And it's usually the mother... That's that the responsibility is put on here, which well, which in, is I, I mean that has a lot to do with they they came from the mother and that's that's having to do with like they recognized the mother's voice before anyone else because they were right. in the womb. Right. I mean, there's a lot of physical biological stuff that goes with the connection to the mother. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of that's probably where that precedence comes from. And actually, attachment. I would like to talk a really long time about attachment because it really is significant in behavior of children. Oh, yes. Huge. And there are different kinds of attachment. The one that we want to have for our children is called secure attachment. Yes. And about two-thirds of all children have secure attachment. That's which good, but kind of two thirds, But that means a that's third. a third of kids. They don't. That's a, so, and yeah. So there are other titles for those kind of unhealthy attachments. We'll talk about those. We'll talk about those point. in another time. But it basically means that they did not make a healthy attachment to their main caregiver. But I would throw in there this, and that is, you know, uh, for the mommies and the daddies who get upset when the baby seems very attached to the daycare person. That's actually good because they're seeing that daycare person a lot and they need to have a healthy attachment to someone that they know that they can trust that will protect them and will keep them safe and will comfort them. So if you have a good child care provider that you trust and you know is is a good person, then don't get too upset if your child is very attached to them because they need to have a healthy attachment to caregivers. Right. And that's not just you if you take your child to to daycare if you trust the eight hours a day. Caregiving. Right. So unfortunately we can't most of us can't be with our babies all the time. So yeah. Anna mentioned that each of the <laughs> my brain just died. Stages? Thank you. Stages. <laughs> each of the stages have <laughs> We're taking I'm, we're taking I'm break. I'm almost using the F word. <laughs> A crisis. And the crisis... <laughs> We're having a crisis right now. <laughs> the crisis for infancy, the psychosocial crisis is trust versus mistrust, which makes perfect sense. With what you just talked about. I right. Mean, a yeah. baby either trusts uh, their caregivers and their environment or they build a mistrust. And the central process for helping that to happen is called mutuality with the caregiver, which basically just means that they trust their caregivers. Mm-hmm. Nanda talked about if they go through the crisis and they conquer the crisis with the right in the right way, which is in this one, trust. So they come out of this stage with trust, then their adaptive ego quality, you used a different word for it, virtue. Oh, yes. Some people call it virtue. 
Um, Ego quality. The I like kind of like it kind of reflects back to the Freudian yeah. stuff. But the virtue they get out of this infancy stage is hope, which is awesome. I like that because then they go forward into life with this hopefulness of like life is good and people right. are going to take care of me if I need them to. And the ego quality directly relates to the first word in the crisis, which is trust. So right. if they develop that trust in a good way, they have hope that other people are people they can trust. Exactly. It generalizes. Yeah. That's exactly right. Unfortunately, if they didn't hit that trust level, if they're stuck in the mistrust because perhaps bad attachment, mm-hmm. um, then they have what the theory calls a core pathology. And the core pathology for this stage is withdrawal. Yep. And that's uh, for the little people who don't feel that they can trust, they pull in to themselves. Usually as infants and toddlers, this looks like a, a shyness and an introversion that's unhealthy unfortunately as they get a little older that often comes out in acting out you know and they get into trouble at school all the time well, because if you don't think you can trust anyone you're not gonna what's the point yeah but we do want to just kind of keep in our mind that if two-thirds are have secure attachments a third of all babies come out of infancy that's a lot with mistrust that's with a lot. withdrawal in some way that is a lot and that's quite frankly sometimes what's rearing its head way when we see adults in counseling right. who are having issues with their relationships or with fitting into society, keeping a job, a lot of those or things. Or just straight up, I had someone today that said, I don't know how to trust people. Exactly. Okay, that that is pretty straightforward. Right. So I don't know about you, Anna, but as I work with clients, the, the stages are right on. Oh, yeah. They're like... There's so many times I talk about a different stage, you know, with a client and say, let's talk about this in your childhood. And I'm not a big, in my counseling sessions, I don't do a lot of, let's talk about your mother, let's talk about your father. But unless it's relevant. Right. In this kind of situation, if a person really did not attach in a healthy way to a prominent caregiver, they're going to struggle their whole life with something. Yeah. So. And I want to get back on my adoption soapbox that I've worked with some adoption families who say like okay well I was a baby when I got adopted I was like a a toddler and and it shouldn't matter because I don't remember any of that stuff it doesn't matter I don't remember anything from when I was two earlier either Mm -hmm. but if I had problems with attachment and it was coming out later that's still affecting me and we still need to deal with it right so even if you can't remember it it's still going to affect you if you didn't develop that trust and that's where a lot of those attachment issues like we use uh, reactive attachment disorder is something that we see a lot in adoption cases and a lot of behavior cases later on in in childhood and it's because they didn't develop that attachment and they didn't in with attachment comes trust so to me it's just two words for the same thing Mm -hmm. whereas if you're saying like they don't have good attachment you're saying they didn't develop that trust right and if they didn't develop that trust then they're going to withdraw from people so it all plays again we've talked about this concept before that like it's all just the same stuff by different names Mm -hmm. exactly and the attachment thing can happen i mean right away your mind goes to the parents who are either not there they're not in the home or they say and do very negative things and cruel things abusive yeah but it also kind of can skew the other way too in the helicopter parent who doesn't and we'll see especially that in toddlerhood and early childhood that idea that parents can't be overly protective or the child doesn't develop so right parenting is hard parenting is hard you got to find a balance Yeah. yeah Okay, that was a long stage, Mom. I could I could have talked for another ten hours. Okay, if you would like one. to hear Mom talk for ten hours, <laughs> everybody subscribe like, no. to us on whatever you listen to us on. Yeah, don't could be Podcoin, <laughs> could be something else. Rate us on iTunes, rate us five stars, and say I want to hear Bonnie talk about <laughs> infants for ten hours. And we will make that happen. This is my last word on infancy. Okay. One of the best things about babies is the way their head smells. I have no research oh to God, prove Ma. this. But it's here now. It's on sniffed. it's on audio. We've recorded it. If you've never sniffed the my top mother's of a baby's head. Obsession with smelling baby heads. When my nephew was born. When my nephew Aiden was born, she said, Smell his head for me. I did. And I said, Well, we're in Canada. <laughs> He smells like a, like a little. He Canadian. smells like an irregular baby, American baby. He smells like maple syrup, Mom. Is that what you wanted me to say? 
No, I know he smelled like a beautiful little baby. He is a beautiful baby. All babies are. Someday he'll listen to this. Hi, Aiden. Don't listen to this until you're older. Yes. I love you. This is not appropriate for you, Aiden. I love you. But if you haven't sniffed a baby's head lately, <laughs> it is great therapy. Find a baby, sniff them. That's your homework. Ask permission to the parents first. Don't just go up to somebody at a grocery I mean, store. Whatever. No, ask permission. May I sniff your baby's head? May I? Don't do that. <laughs> I'm so serious. Don't do that. You'll get arrested immediately. Okay, so we are going to continue with the other stages in future podcasts. Yes, this is so a be to be sure continued. To, yeah, it's going to be a... Uh, Will you thank the people for listening? I do thank them. <laughs> I do you with, always, with you know my what heart. I've, I've noticed that every week you say, do you want to thank them? And I'm always like, well, hell yes, I want to thank them. <laughs> I'm inviting you to start our ending process, Oh, Mom. okay, all right, okay. Instead of staring at so you for 30 seconds awkwardly like I did to start end. our entrance process... <laughs> We sure do appreciate y'all, y'all <laughs> listeners. Um, we do appreciate you. We we thank you for spending some time with us, and we hope that you'll be sure to be back with us next time when we continue this conversation about Erickson's stages. Ongoing conversation. Mm-hmm. And again, if you are looking for other entertainment for your ear holes, then check out Sip, Survive, Repeat. Check out Necessary Bullshit. Um, they are both very, very good. And they will fill the void for you in between when we release our episodes. <laughs> and look out for our future collaborations with those people. We're That'd very excited. As for us, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all by the name Freudian Sips Pod. Our site is FreudianSipsPod.com. And if you want to get a hold of us directly, you can email us at FreudianSipsPod at gmail.com. If you want to send us recommendations for things you think we should talk about, or if you just want to say hi and say, hi, I want a mom hug whenever you do a live show, <laughs> then you can say that too. And I might sniff your head. <laughs> <laughs> Because you're her baby now. It's creepier as it goes. It works. <laughs> and if you want to throw us a few bucks on Patreon, we are Freudian Sips Pod on there as well. Please remember to leave us a nice rating and review on iTunes, or if you can do that wherever you're listening, then do that. It really helps us. And our theme music is Sweeter Vermouth by Kevin McLeod, and it sounds like this. Mm-hmm.